You're listening to a special version of the Inside Myanmar podcast, covering the military coup and the ensuing protest movement that has developed. During this crisis, we're ramping up the production of not only podcast episodes, but also our blog and other social media platforms. So we invite you to check these out as well. All the other projects that had been in progress prior to February have since been paused indefinitely to focus entirely on this emergency. But for now, let's get into our show. I'm talking with Mimi A. from England. She is the author of Mandalay, Recipes and Tales from a Burmese Kitchen, also runs the site Burmese Beyond, and has her own podcast, the MSG Pod. And uh, it's so great to be able to welcome her and join and talk a little bit about what's been going on this month. So Mimi A., thank you so much for taking the time to be on. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's good to be here. Yeah. So before we get into it, can I ask a little bit about your background, about where you're from and how you ended up where you are and what you're doing? Okay. (laughs) Um, So my parents came over to England just before I was born, like two or three months before I was born. Um, I've got two older brothers who were six and nine, um, and they were very much part of the there was like a brain drain to the UK at the time of mainly doctors from Burma. Um, and so there was a whole generation that came over with their children. But I think they were very much of the opinion that they would end up going back at some point, um, especially my parents. And so even though I was born here, I was brought up Burmese entirely, um, in, by which I mean we only ate Burmese food at home. We spoke Burmese at home um my parents still wear Burmese clothes and I do indoors anyway it's too cold to wear lungi outside um <laughs> but mm-hmm. it's, it's just one of those situations where I think culturally um we were very very much Burmese um but then obviously outside we were you know part of the UK we we, we integrated it wasn't like we kind of <laughs> hid and didn't talk to the locals um but but it, it means I'm kind of I guess it's the, the cold third culture kid thing in which I there's kind of two parts of me where I feel very much like I'm from the UK but I also feel I'm very much from Burma even though I've never actually lived in Burma um, hmm. and that's probably because when, very early on so when I was three years old my grandparents my dad's parents from Mandalay they came to stay with us for a year um, and my parents were both working at the time so they very much kind of looked after me and my brothers for that year. Um, and then after that, when I was eight years old, um, my parents could afford to go back for the first time. Um, and so, you know, the whole rest of our family 
is still there, was still there. Um, and so we went back and we traveled around because, you know, my dad's side are from Mandalay and my mom's side are from Mogo and Yangon. Um, and so we went and stayed with them. We did the thing where, you, <laughs> you know how you, the PR Pura, you, you kind of go to the PR almost mm. like a, a fun family trip. Um, right. I'm, I'm, I'm a terrible Buddhist. I, I told mm-hmm. you this before. I, I, <laughs> I, I'm about, like your average Christian in a Western country, I, I kind of celebrate the festivals and know, I know some terms and some concepts and, uh, you know, I, I know what it's like to have to kind of, you know, the Buddhist precepts and stuff, but I'm, I'm otherwise very, very bad at that kind of thing um so so for me it's you know I have these I guess these two lives um and then so you know I I, I obviously I grew up here and I carried on visiting family back home sometimes with my parents sometimes by myself um and then uh, I I ended up kind of getting into writing as a hobby um primarily food writing um and I had but basically, my mum is a really brilliant cook, um, and she she was always kind of hailed as being the best in the kind of the Burmese community here in the in around London. Um, and she she's I think she's fairly typical in that she never had any recipes written down, and she. Um, didn't really teach me what she was doing but I'd observe I'd watch her in the kitchen and I'd make notes and then obviously Mm. every time I went back to Burma I would kind of um eat a lot (laughs) absolute lesson that's what we would do and I would kind of ask you know we'd bother stall holders and and cafe owners for their (laughs) recipes and you know obviously they'd never give us their recipes but they'd give us hints and tips and then you know when we got back to England we'd reverse engineer how things should be and so I very much kept alive like it's not like what we cook is what my mum was cooking in when we left the country um it's still kind of living breathing Burmese food kind of what people still eat in Burma so forgive me for using Burma because I'm old I still haven't got around to using (laughs) Yama um but yeah but, but basically um I got into kind of writing about Burmese food and then the way these things work these days is that I was um I suppose scouted on social media to write a cookery book um, about noodles um, and so I, I wrote that in 2014 um, and when that came out I, I, I kind of <laughs> I shoehorned in a chapter about Burmese noodles because I never really thought that I'd get to write a book entirely about Burmese food um, and that book did did pretty well everyone really kind of liked it and then at some point um, a couple of years ago so in, t- in 2019 um, I finally published a book about Burmese food um, and the thing about that book, um, which is, is kind of, I, I have a funny relationship with my book because it's, it's very, very personal in a way that I don't think many cookbooks are. Um, there's like a, a 40 page introduction, which is <laughs> almost an autobiography, um, where I kind of talk about my upbringing, my childhood and my family. I talk a lot about Burmese culture. I talk about things like the geography of the country and how that's affected you know how food tastes have developed and, and dif- dif- differed around the regions um and you know every recipe as well I, I kind of put into context because I didn't want to just like say this this is a lovely rice dish and you should eat it just because it's tasty so I've I've kind of tried to say why I've written this recipe what it means to me or kind of its place in Burmese culture as a whole so for example there's um my recipe for dumbbell, you know, kind of our version of biryani, I've mentioned how this is a really celebratory dish and how um, it was served at my own wedding. Um, so it's, it's kind of trying to <laughs> paint a picture 
for every recipe so people know how these foods are enjoyed and loved and not just trying it and then moving on, I suppose. Um, right. That's really great and interesting and also hits upon how the food and the culture and the people are all intertwined and related and connecting it and bringing it all together. So on that note, you know, I think there are listeners here who have eaten some Burmese food but can't really remember what it was. Maybe some have never eaten Burmese food. Maybe some have spent some time in Myanmar but don't really exactly know how to classify or describe it. So mm. you being the expert, how would you describe uh, to a novice what Burmese food actually is? How would you categorize it? Um, so the way I've been describing it probably most recently is I think it's, apart from we don't use coconut as much, I think it's very similar to Malaysian cuisine. And the reason I say that is because it's very much um, <laughs> uncategorizable in that, you know, you have rice is your daily meal um but then people love noodles and we love fritters and we love salads and we love soups and you know there's you know if whatever you feel like eating you can guarantee that you can go and find it and it's still very much burmese food um and in terms of kind of like influences i think like our salads are quite similar to thai salads and our noodles towards chinese noodles and our i guess our curries are similar to indian curries um but then the, the thing that i always find very important to, to explain to people is that for us it isn't just different flavors that we like we're also very we, we, we find things like texture very important. Um, mm. So, I mean, the one one thing that I've always um, found quite amusing is that all my friends from other countries in the area um, talk about how much they love congee um, because they think it's, you know, such a vital restorative thing and, you know, there's like kind of whole rituals developed around it. But in Burma, the opinion of congee, um, which we call sambio, is, is pretty, pretty dim. We have a pretty dim view of it because... It's considered a bit too dull and one note, um, even even if you do put like toppings on it. So what, what we care about is, for example, you know the the sort of pseudo national dish of mohenga. Mm. It's, it's it's ostensibly like a soft um, soup with soft noodles in it, but you have to have crunchy fritters on it, and you have mm -hmm, to have mm -hmm. you know the the, the kind of um, garnishes of soft egg and this and the coriander and then you the spice of the chili and. And you have to kind of make sure that every spoonful you have is slightly different to kind of keep your, <laughs> your palate alive. Um, and it's the same even with rice because, you know, with, with a rice dish, you, you could might think, you know, rice is, can be quite plain. Um, but we, we try to serve it with a soup on the side and with, you know, some dipping sauce and some vegetables and, again, something crunchy and, you know, maybe a curry and two stir fries. So it's like you want to have interest with every mouthful. Um mm. So that's what I really like about Burmese food. Um, that's that's really interesting. It reminds me of, I, I wrote this um, meditator's guidebook to the country and we had a whole chapter on food and we we looked specifically at like food at monasteries. And in writing the book, we just reached out to a lot of different people to get their feedback and views on um, perspectives, anecdotes and such. And we talked to one Burmese guy who said something that, that I've never forgotten. And I've talked to other readers of the book who also said this line, like just changed the whole way they interacted with Burmese cuisine, where he was he was actually describing how one sits down to eat a meal and describing all the little bowls that are in front, the pickles, the kind of clear soup with mm. uh, little herbs, the, the different curries, the different sauces, the rice. And he was just describing this kind of like, like critical 
engagement of like, well, first I take a little bit Mm. of this sauce with this rice and this texture. And then because it does this thing on my tongue, then I take a little bit of soup, but Mm. then the soup kind of washes it clean. And now it's ready for a little bit of this. And (laughs) it was this like this incredibly like complicated and engaged way (laughs) to take all these different flavors and textures. And I remember my friend, my foreign friends and I talking to each other and be like, I've been here years. And that never occurred to me to do that with all these things. I just kind of ate this and then ate this and then ate that. And that's why we like to use our hands as well because it lets us form these little morsels more easily so Mm. so what's your favorite dish um (laughs) but it changes all the time i think the ones that i say are my favorite now are just the ones that are my favorite for like sentimental reasons um i think my my favorite at the moment is um a dish called mogo miche um, mm-hmm. just because it's a, it's a noodle dish from my mum's hometown of Mogo. Mm. Um, and the reason that's my favourite is because it, it means home to me because uh. basically when we come, when we get off the flight and we land in the country and we get whisked to my auntie's house, it's it's the first thing that we eat. It's on the table ready for us. All right. Um, so <laughs> that's why I love it. That's great. That's great. So staying on the topic of food, uh, just to take a moment to understand how the restaurant industry in general has been affected in this year of pandemic before mm. even the February events. I'm curious if if you have friends in the restaurant you know, food industry back in Burma, if you've heard anything about how either big restaurant owners or the small shop and stall sellers on the street, how they've been faring even prior to February? Mm, yeah, I, I have friends in kind of both types, high end and, and uh, more kind of everyday dining let's say um and not great is, is is the thing because you know they everyone's kind of been on lockdown for a while now um there's been a lot of reliance on delivery services like food panda um so people are kind of trying to think of new ways to to sell their menus um and you know it, it's kind of working but not as well as it would if you could have dine-in as the issue um but i mean but Burma is very much a kind of a, a parcel and a tiffin carrier um, culture anyway. Mm-hmm. So I think people already had that kind of mode of taking away food. Um, so I think that's been continuing and been ramped up a little bit. Um, I think the people with the high-end restaurants are actually having more difficulties because mm. those are the people that have been relying on people coming and enjoying the atmosphere and enjoying the, the you know, the being served, table service. Um, but they too kind of have had to adapt you know, the, the methods and the foods that they supply um, so it is portable and so it's deliverable. So, I mean, pe- people were coping just about, Um but obviously the, the pandemic hit them quite hard. And now, now, you know, it's just, I think people are barely surviving. Um, so. Yeah, I know. And, and that's in, uh, out kind of in society. I know in the, in the monastery and nunnery world that there have been a number of places that have just been without food. It's been really yeah. tragic. And yeah. I mean, there was this whole, um, this, uh, these uh, current as well as former monastics outside of Myanmar put together this project last year called Food for Nuns that was actually quite successful right. in terms of eliciting donation from meditators, people interested in Buddhism around the world to be able to purchase food for a lot of nunneries around Yangon that just, it's 
tragic because you know it's such a giving culture and there's so much merit to be made mm. in giving to monastics but the pandemic was so hard that there sometimes actually wasn't enough food even at monasteries and nunneries i mean i'm not surprised so my, my auntie amandale she um you know she's in the habit of doing like the daily solau um and she also regularly went to like sunka and and what happened <laughs> she she unfortunately went to one where um one of the the gentlemen at her table um had covid and, oh, and then no. she and everyone at the table, and I think everyone in a certain perimeter ended up being quarantined in a in a like a, a hotel um, on the outskirts of Mandalay for like twenty five days. I think it was. Oh wow! I think she 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 did not enjoy that whole experience. No, the quarantine centers were really difficult. I mean, they were almost. I, I also had friends who had to go to them, and luckily they didn't test positive. But they the, the experience just sounded like a nightmare. It sounded like almost like a prison where if you if you didn't have it, you had a better chance of getting it when you came out. Oh, that's not good, is it? No, no. So moving to the current situation, you know, just as things as if things weren't tough enough, we now Ooh. have this terrible crisis going on this month and the response from all sectors of society has just been absolutely incredible. And certainly this is the case from the cooks and the people in food as well. Uh, some places have been offering free food to the CDM mm. workers, that's the civil disobedience movement, uh, as well as to protesters on the front lines, uh, either mm. in the form of cooked meals or raw ingredients. And I've seen other stalls, they've outright, so like some stalls have said, you know, any CDM worker eats here for free yeah. on one side of the stall. And then the other side of the stall, they say, we do not serve military or police. So, <laughs> yeah, so, That's um, so brave as well. It's so brave. And then there's these protests themselves where various organizations, people, everything else have just offered these huge amounts of food to everyone freely. Mm. So mm. I, I'm curious if you being involved in the food world yourself, if you've been connected to any of these initiatives or people or organizations, if you know anything about how this is being carried out right now. Um, <laughs> a lot of it is kind of informally. Um, so and I, I recently on, on, you know, you mentioned that I have a podcast myself. Um, the lady that I spoke to, she's actually in the restaurant industry. And she said it's all it's all a bit ad hoc. And the reason is because uh, I mean, I, I don't know how much people know about the history of Burma, but it's um, <laughs> it's always been a situation where you can't necessarily trust people. Mm -hmm. um, there, there was a system of military intelligence and military informers as well. So um, it, it's been people using whatever techniques to get messages to each other and hoping that those messages won't get intercepted. Um, but she has got a group of people that she works with regularly, um, and it's kind of word of mouth more than anything else where they have been kind of providing food to protesters another friend of mine she runs um like a, a bigger chain of restaurants and they've been doing the same thing they've been taking parcels out every day for people taking water and other drinks to people um and it was so they have a system where other people like myself can donate to them directly so they are being funded so we're not expecting these these restaurants which are probably not having any business as it is aren't being expected to to kind of bankrupt themselves in order to help the people out there mm. um so yeah. how would listeners be able to donate to that if they wanted to it's uh, it's very very difficult um because mm. as i said it, it's hard to know who to trust so you'd have to know someone personally to do okay. that okay um, right so <laughs> Um, and the other thing is with all the banks are closed, so it's not like an international transfer. 
um, is going to really work at the moment. So, um. Right, right. Und- understood. So, you know, how do you think they're capable of doing and managing this? I'm just thinking like one day you wake up, your life is normal, you're running your business, you have your family and um, professional, whatever your concerns are of the day. And then the next day, you're organizing food for thousands of volunteers. So how how do you think this transition has been able to be made to respond to this moment? I mean, I think part of it is kind of like the Burmese Buddhist um, personality. <laughs> is that the, the way to say it? Um, because we are kind of used to feeding lots of people. Um, we have... The, the thing I mentioned before, you have a salon, so you're, you know, you, you're used to feeding monks and nuns on a daily basis. You're used to kind of doing these charitable donations. Um, so it's not an alien thing to be doing. I think all that's happening now is that they're kind of ramping up the scale of what they're doing. Right. Um, and in terms of like how they're funding it, again, like I said, it's partly from donations. And I, I think it's just partly, I don't know, I, I actually don't know. Uh, and I'm worried that they're going to run out of money soon. So, um, yeah. But I, I think it's, it's one of those things. So you know how like Burma is consistently ranked as one of the highest countries in terms of generosity and charitable sure. giving mm-hmm. um it's the whole thing about how they'd give the shirt off their back um <laughs> and, and i think that's very much the mentality that's um, dom- dominating right now um so yeah no i i totally agree and i i that that also fed into my observation of it was i noticed that you know having lived in myanmar for a number of years there there are things in society that can be kind of frustrating and not work and uh, in the same way from a Western sense. But sometimes as I would observe this, I would also observe every single day at every single monastery and nunnery across the entire country, a full and nutritious meal is provided to them at the time it's supposed to be provided. You mm-hmm. know, at, and, and so you're talking about hundreds of thousands of these meals that have to be provided. Not only are they provided, but they, they have to be offered the right way. They can't just be like prepared and left there. Um, if they're a few minutes late, then, uh, you know, then you're risking that the monk is not going to get his food for the day. For those mm. who don't know, I should say, for those who mm. don't know the rules of Buddhism, uh, monks and nuns are not allowed to eat after 12 noon. Mm-hmm. So if you have this great volition of giving a monk a meal at 11 o'clock and then things get a little tight in the kitchen and you don't get it to him until like 1130, 1145, well, he has 15 minutes to eat. So like mm. you have to have this daily organization of preparing this food this is of course all voluntary it's mm. uh, the the these are these are people who have renounced society and it has to be offered in the correct way so there's this whole protocol with it as well so it's always amazed me not just the generosity of it which of course speaks for itself but the level of organization and coordination and i see this when so i've been at burmese nunneries from burmese monasteries and nunneries from the inside where they're doing this preparation and then i've mm-hmm. spent time at like western meditation centers where volunteers are preparing food for say like 100 meditators and you're inside those kitchens and they are like frenetic every day mm-hmm. just just like how do we do this and what's happening with this and sometimes things get late and so to see how much Westerners are like struggling to get this out on time and get this done <laughs> just in 10 days of their lives, and then to see an entire society organizing this day after day after day without complaining and really without flaw, I've never really seen a meal not turned out on time. Um, <laughs> it, it feels like there's got to be something here. There's got to be something with like 
the organization and the um, both the generosity as well as the practicality of how mm. it gets done, mm. that some spirit and ability of what they're doing in the monastery has to be that there has to be some of that spirit now out on the street. Mm. I mean, yeah, I think it is. I mean, in terms of like organization, you know, I mentioned that my mum's a brilliant cook. So my my mum is seventy three this year I think and every day she still cooks a full Burmese meal with like Mm. all the accompaniments every day um and before the pandemic she was in my children's like full-time carer she's shielding now um but yeah so she was looking after my two little children and cooking this amazing meal every day and I swear she didn't blink and I swear she would just get up and do it Mm. be done in half an hour and I can't do that (laughs) and I feel really kind of almost ashamed about it because I feel like maybe I'm too western (laughs) you know (laughs) what I mean um Mm. so yeah I I think it is yeah there's there's some kind of spirit there that just makes them incredibly efficient so um (laughs) Yeah, right. I mean, just the other day, I was hearing from a friend in Monua that actually two days ago, Monua faced some 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 difficulty with uh, the military coming in. Mm-hmm. And he was describing how they knew the military was coming. And so he actually lives outside of Monua. So the men were all going out into the streets to to make to do makeshift barricades of like, you know, putting their cars out, dirt, mm. uh, rocks, wood, mm. stuff like that. And so he had pictures of all that he showed me. And then the women all went to cook meals for the guys putting the barricades up. And so mm. it was just like, this, this is amazing. This is this, is this these, these residents who one day are going about their lives and the next day are preparing what they need to do to stop an onslaught. And, you know, the food fits into that with um, how they have to manage that as well. Well, it's kind of funny. I, I mentioned this in my book where I say that for the Burmese, necessity is the mother of invention. And um, mm, you, right. you, know, you know the show MacGyver? Yeah. Um, I, I always used to think that like everyone in my family was basically like MacGyver, my, my mum, <laughs> right. because she could, you know, you could just give her like, I don't know, a bit, see, she's a really good carpenter as well. You uh, could just give her a bit of wood and she'd have uh-huh. like a perfect stool the next day. So. <laughs> right. Um, and yeah, I, I think there is just that kind of resourcefulness as well. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so moving along with looking at this last month and uh, and how it's been, I want to shift gears a little bit and just talk about the personal side of it. And as as you know, we've talked offline. You have, and you also shared something on Twitter, which quite impacted me with um, being able to express just the the personal side of of how you were interacting with uh, the tragedy of what was happening. So. I want to check in now. How how are you doing now? How how are you feeling? Um, <laughs> I have this thing where I think I've compartmentalized my feelings. I think I have to. Um, I'm kind of running on fumes at the moment because the the time difference means that um, it's like tough. It's two thirty a.m. here is when everybody wakes up in Burma. And when I say wakes up, I mean the internet wakes up because obviously there's been this nightly shutdown where from 1am to 9am, they don't have any connectivity. So it means I'm, <laughs> I am staying up till half two at night just mm. to find out if my family is still around mm. um, and checking in on them and, you know, making sure that they, they send me like the little thumbs up or, you know, whatever. Um, so yeah, I, I, but because of that, I've, <laughs> I'm obviously not getting enough sleep. Um, but yeah. I'm also feeling kind of 
I don't know, like I said, I've, I've tried to compartmentalize things because I need to, you know, keep things together for my children and my husband, yeah. um, you know, get and get on with like the, the other things that I have to do in my life. But I'm spending like the rest of my time just trying to keep tabs on stuff and trying to spread awareness for what's happening out there. Because obviously it's, it's like all of these things. It, I think for a lot of people, it, it was on the front page the, when it happened, the coup and the you know, people have lost interest because there are other things to get on with and everyone's having a hard time because of the pandemic. So, you know, who's going to worry about stuff happening on the other side of the world? Um, so I'm, I am kind of spending my time trying to keep it in, in people's minds um, mm. and, and sharing petitions and sharing links to email templates and, and saying, come on, all you have to do is click here. And, <laughs> you know, every little bit helps. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's just trying to, trying to juggle things and I'm not sure how successful I'm being at doing that. Um. Yeah, I, I hear you. Yeah. Same, same here. I, um, if, if you're comfortable with it, I'd like to read that piece that you wrote on Twitter that impacted me so much. Would, would you mind if I do that? No, go ahead. Okay. So you wrote something I really don't talk about is to be Burmese, especially if you're of a certain age to be afraid from bitter experience. It's a low level visceral feeling. Most of the time, but sometimes like now it can be overwhelming because all the worst things that you can imagine that could happen to you or your loved ones can happen and has happened to you or to people you know because of the Burmese military. Right now, I don't even want to eat, let alone cook anything. There's a reason that Aung San Suu Kyi's most famous book is called Freedom from Fear. Uh, so that's what you wrote. Uh, I, I'm curious what was kind of in your mind as you wrote that and as you formulated those ideas. Oh, <laughs> what was in my mind? I, th I think the main thing that was in my mind is that I think people see things as very black and white. Um, I think people, um, they tend to just see an incident happen. So they see that a coup has happened and they don't know anything about the history and they don't know anything about the people of that country. And so they just think, oh, there's some kind of unrest happening in that part of the world. Um, and I think I was just trying to, <laughs> I was just trying to um, reveal a little part of, of at least for a, a, a lot of people in Burma, a lot of people of a certain generation, something that is actually part of our psyche. Uh, the fact that, you know, there has been a military dictatorship of some form for like 40 years and then there was a civilian government but then in the civilian government the constitution tied it so the military still had significant control and so you know it's it's a it's a world that many of us um either grew up in so my own family would have grown up on it or I kind of grew up adjacent to it but because I went back to Burma so often I saw parts of it I saw how my family were I, I, I saw how my mum and dad are when they go back and it's it's kind of it's a really odd disconnected thing because obviously every trip home was very very joyful because I was seeing my family I was hanging out with them I was getting to eat lovely food and go to lovely places mm. um but you know we had this thing where like we would get shadowed by military intelligence when we were out there Mm -hmm. So you'd see plain clothes officers, you know, just it, it got very obvious. You could see them following you. Mm -hmm. And you'd have things where, you know, when I got older, I um I, I qualified as a lawyer. And, you know, my family said, don't tell people you're a lawyer, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, you weren't allowed to talk to journalists and, you know, mm -hmm. you couldn't do this and that. So you know, it, it was like you could you could live a life, but it wasn't free. And it wasn't like, and, and then you'd have these things where people would just 
disappear right you know and <laughs> so it was a it was a very very strange world and a strange life and as i said everyone had this fear but it was a fear that you had to deal with and you had to live with um because there wasn't anything else right and so even when the country was opening up it from what you were writing it sounds like that fear was still at a low level still kind of present and latent and and somewhere oh, yeah. mm-hmm. so like like i said i'm a i'm a lawyer and i i, I read the constitution and the constitution i mean every, i think most people know that the constitution barred alsasuji from becoming president um, that's why they created the office of state councilor but there are other <laughs> very interesting clauses in there um every articles in there you know and one one of them is the one that said basically the the, the military is kind of like the fifth branch of government mm. um, and that it can administer anything it wants, really. Um, and, you know, it, it, you know the, the civilians don't have power over them. Um, and then obviously also the fact that if there is a state of emergency, they can do whatever they like. And that's exactly what's happened. They declared a state mm. of emergency and then they invoked an article that revoked um, the human rights articles, um, which apply to, you know, right to privacy, right to home life, you know, right to family. So there was always the sense that, you know, you know the, the, the um, you know, I, I can't remember the phrase, but we were waiting for the other shoe to drop, you know? Mm-hmm. We knew that this was not... I see. <laughs> something, something was going to happen at some point sooner or later, basically, because the Constitution had been drafted in this way. Mm-hmm. So this was like uh, like what happened this month is kind of like a trigger of all of this past trauma and crisis that many Burmese people have been living with their whole lives. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I have a lot of friends and family who are a lot younger than I am, so they don't remember 1988. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of them have have been around, have been kind of socially active, have been their own people since the civilian government came in in 2010. And so they've had like that taste of democracy. Mm-hmm. And so for them, I think it was genuinely a shock that this mm-hmm. happened mm-hmm. because everything else was just legend. Mm-hmm. You know? Right, right. Um, but as I said, for people, older people like me, I'm, I'm 42, um, it's... It, it was, you know, it's not like we wanted to say, I told you so, mm-hmm. um, but it was very much, a, oh, I'm getting really bad deja vu now. So. Mm, right. Um. Yeah. So that piece that you wrote, you, you, I should say that on your platform, you've been sharing, you've been really active, like so many of us out there have completely turned your platform over, your platforms over to this issue and are just sharing news and information and thoughts and other things. This is the only post I've seen of yours. Maybe there have been others that have re- has really hit upon the personal and in a very direct and vulnerable way. Did, did I know it affected me and I responded to you privately with it. Did you get a response from others with that, that sharing? I did. I, get a lot, I, got, I had a lot of people sharing it. So for a lot of people, they were sharing it because they had those exact same fears. But for a lot of people, and this actually made me I don't, I, it was quite heartbreaking. A lot of people messaged me and said that their mums and dads had told them these things and they had right. never, because it was their mums and dads, they just thought they were exaggerating mm. and they thought they'd never believed it. But to see me, like an, a, an objective third party, right, mm-hmm. voicing those same thoughts and fears terrified them mm. and made them realise that their mums and dads hadn't been making it up. Um mm. And so, like I said, I, it was kind of heartbreaking because they actually thanked me because it said that they said that it made them feel 
more connected to their parents as a result. Right. Um, you know, so yeah, that was that was kind of that was odd. That was like, quite odd. Right. Right. Well, I just I think these kinds of conversations and sharings are so important right now because on one hand you have the the political and the, the national news and the events that are unfolding and everything else, but it's so important to remember that these aren't just things happening outside. These are things that are having an enormous personal impact that are not just happening now at the moment within someone, but that are connected to years and years of suppression and trauma that people outside who aren't familiar with it might not really understand the depth of. Yeah, I mean, I did share another thing that was kind of quite personal, and that was the fact, we touched on it already, but the fact that because there was a system of military informers, which is still alive and kicking, um, it meant that you were kind of, you had to be careful what you said. You know, mm-hmm. and, and, and that also kind of went into the whole being afraid thing. Um, and so even saying the word for government, Asoya, was something you didn't want to say right. as if he was like Sauron or Voldemort, you know. Right, right, right. <laughs> it's just the word for government. You shouldn't yep. be scared to say that. Mm-hmm. But you were and you didn't ever say it. Um, so, yeah, it's just, just it's a very odd, a very odd existence. And it's almost... Because the other thing that I mentioned, the other thing that I, I, I wrote about um, was the fact that it's it, it's kind of, Burma is a nation that was gaslit for decades, mm-hmm. by which I mean, just in the press, so like the official newspaper, New Light of Myanmar, had all these slogans on a daily basis saying that, you know, the Damadors, or the military was like for the people and anyone else was like a, a threat to the nation. And, and it, it went through a long phase of saying like VOA, Voice of America and BBC were fake news before mm-hmm. Donald Trump said the word fake news. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then like even going about your daily business, there were these massive billboards with the same slogan saying that the Dumbledore will crush any enemy and they're your friend and, you know, like Mm. massive big red billboards and they were everywhere. It was books. It was printed in every book that was published. It was everywhere, every book, newspapers. Movies, yeah. Yeah, you couldn't get away from these. And and like I said, they're not, you know, it's not like they were subliminal. They were just (laughs) blaring out at you. Um, And so... It was kind of a weird thing because, like I said, it's, it's like they were just gaslighting the nation for decades. Um, and, and, and again, that's something that I think <laughs> the whole nation must suffer some kind of trauma because of it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Actually, just an aside, but it, it made me remember one of the those big billboards right in downtown, like near Sule, like with the bridge that, uh, that that's going north from Sule. There was a big one there. And when the opening started to happen around 2012 or something, I remember mm-hmm. one day walking down there and it was like that that sign had been, the, the billboard was still up, but the sign had been down. Then I came back a month later and I was, I was stunned into paralysis to see that that billboard had been taken over by Coca-Cola. It was like, (laughs) how symbolic is this? And it was like, it was so stunning. I had never seen any Western product anywhere in Myanmar at that point because it was all closed. I mean, Coca-Cola was kind of a a luxury, fancy imported gift. And it was like, this this is really showing the, you know, from dictatorship to commercialism. like KFC coming in in right. 2015 and suddenly being everywhere. Um, and, and the other thing that, um, what was I going to say? <laughs> it slipped my mind now. Uh, 
Okay, it'll probably come back to me. Um, yeah, so, so yeah, no, the, the, the fact that these things were kind of changing overnight. Oh, that's what I was going to say. So, um, so you know, I was saying about how like these slogans were printed in all the newspapers. Mm. So it, it kind of it, it kind of went away for a little bit, right? Um, but then a friend of mine messaged me just yesterday and said, "Oh, they've started again." And she sent me the latest version in the new light of Myanmar. And mm. if anything, it's more verbose than the old version. Mm-hmm. Like I can barely work out what it's trying to say. But it's just <laughs> all this kind of weird right. government speak just to mess with your mind and. But this is the interesting thing is this is Generation Z. This is a a highly interconnected generation, whether it's, you know, TikTok or gaming or uh, Facebook or like whatever, whatever the type of online communities that are being created. Like there's been almost a decade of those kind of connections. And so Mm. it's so to go from. So I was thinking when you said five minutes ago how, you know, so yeah, government was a word you couldn't even say in public. Yeah, I remember those days. I remember, mm. I remember one time being with a, um, a foreigner who had just come in. We were at a, at a night market and we were chatting. And in the middle of our chat, he just said something about, he said the word Aung San Suu Kyi in the middle of the conversation. Ooh. And I just, I freaked out. I mean, yeah. I went like numb from top to bottom. I looked around. I realized I couldn't tell him, you know, I couldn't call him out. So I just was kind of like, hey, so are you done with your changing meal? Like maybe like not just changing the subject, but like let's move and start <laughs> to walk. And, you know, so like to go from that to Generation Z where it's mm. like every, um, I mean, seemingly every single person is like sharing publicly videos, name, profile, photo. It's, like it's crazy. Yeah. I remember in, in 2012, I remember I was in Bojose and I noticed that they had like calendars of Aung San for yes, sale. Right. And I was like, how, how is this <laughs> happening? Yeah. You know? Yeah, you know my you know, my family. They had photos of Aung San and of Aung San Suu Kyi, and they were hidden. They were in cupboards. You know, yep. <laughs> you, you you were terrified that anyone would find them. You could from that to people selling it on a market store. That's right. I mean, you <laughs> couldn't say her name in public. You no. you the, the where her house was located. You you, you <gasps> oh couldn't God. even really walk around there. Yeah, I remember we drove down there once, and mm. I can't remember. I can't remember what it was, but I was told that I had to hide. And we were mm. in the car, so I had crouched down in the footwell of the car. Mm-hmm. Um, I think maybe I was just wasn't meant to be in the car, that thing <laughs> but it was because we were driving down her road. So, yeah, that was that was quite bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So you wrote this piece that I quoted. I don't know, maybe about two weeks ago, a week and a half or something. And mm. I know I don't know about for you. For me, it seems like every day is a year in terms of the, mm, what oh develops, what happens outside, cannot, and cannot keep up. Yeah, and <laughs> as well as the internal, you know, formulation and recalibration so where are you at in terms of what you wrote a week and a half two weeks ago where where do you now sit with that what's going on now um i'm kind of i'm still scared but it's a different type of scared Mm -hmm. because the type of scared that i had then was the type of scared that made me not say anything not want to say anything Mm. because like you said i still had that thing that the hangover of worrying about saying saying anything anti-government would get me and my family in trouble um, and I've kind of got to the point where I'm a bit to hell with it mm. because if we don't do something, those of us that have a platform that mm-hmm. have the connectivity don't mm-hmm. do something, then mm-hmm. this is just going to continue. Um, and you know, this needs to be the last generation that suffers like this. Um, so yeah, <laughs> there's still the fear, but it's, it's kind of, um, <laughs> I don't know. 
it's 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 not a cowardly fear anymore because I guess I I think it was cowardly and and I don't mean so much I was afraid for myself it was more for for everyone else that might be affected um it's the it's the not wanting to speak out not wanting to to bring attention I think more it's the you know to hell with it we're all in this together. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's been a momentum. There's definitely been a momentum shift I've been feeling in the past few weeks of just more and more oh. piling on to what this movement means. Well, I mean, you know, the, I think the massively groundbreaking moment was uh, when Ujo Moton yes. at the, the UN General Assembly basically defected live. Um, mm-hmm. That was just shocking. But it was also the first time that I felt hope. I think mm. um, because because I'm old and because I remember 1988. I uh, until that point I'd just been thinking, oh God, this is going to end the same way, you know? They're, they're they're just gonna because the outside world won't know or do enough, and the military mm-hmm, don't care mm-hmm. what's right, you know, right. So they're gonna lose their patience and they're just gonna open fire and just mow everyone down. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that someone was able, you know, prepared to do that, that you know, and I, I, also, I hear his his family are already receiving death threats, which is lovely. Um, the classic mm. being accused of being a traitor now. Yeah. Um, so you know, he's he took an enormous risk doing that, but that risk gave hope to all of us. Um, right, and it didn't so, just give hope, but it actually created a pathway for others to do the same. I think that, yes. and that's the momentum comes twenty four hours after he did that a monk of some standing got in touch with me and wrote a very a very direct and impactful open letter it's anonymous for a safety mm-hmm. but it's a it's a beautiful letter of him of on one hand and this is a very apolitical monk so on one hand he's respecting the renunciation vows that he took and not involving himself in directing directing worldly affairs and just wanting to lead protests or something mm-hmm. but he's also using his moral authority to be able to to speak on this and so I, you know, seeing like the the, the ambassador um, speak at the UN and his uh, and the effects that that he had, and then, you know, a day later having this 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 monk want to use a platform to speak, and then just has me thinking like, well, well, can this start to evolve into mm. creating space? in small ways and big and different sectors of society yeah. for more and more to start to say, okay, now I'm, and, and as you've talked about using your platform, it's definitely a decision I've made with my platform to want to, um, to, uh, to make, to take that, that risk and step up and then create that space for others to similarly do the same. Yeah, definitely. It's the snowball effect, right? Mm. You, uh, you see other people who are willing to do that. Then you feel like, well, you know, I, I feel like I should do that too. Um, so yeah, it, you're right. You know, it, it's not just a case of hope. It's a case of giving people courage, right? So. Mm-hmm. Right. Showing a way forward. Yeah. So the, the, that quotation I read of yours, um, you had mentioned how many Burmese people got in touch with you, thanking you younger people, especially because it gave them insight into their family and their background. Did you get any other reaction from foreigners or people that, uh, through you writing allowed them to understand what you and others like you were going through on a personal level? Yes. Yeah. I, I did get a few people. Some, some were friends of mine who mm. <laughs> they were quite, they were quite disconcerted because I, 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 I'm generally known as someone who's quite cheerful, I guess. Um, not someone that they would have ever thought of as being afraid. And of course, the, the other thing is that I'm also known as a, more of a low-level person. But I'm, mm. I'm, 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 I'm kind of an activist for kind of issues in this country, in the UK as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do a lot of anti-racist work. Um, and so they kind of knew that, I think they always saw me as being 
cheerful and confident. Mm. Um, and the fact that I wrote that, I think, freaked them out a bit. <laughs> mm. um, and so th- those are people that I actually knew. But I also had strangers um, telling me that this kind of explained some stuff to them because they were familiar with people from Burma. Um, and it kind of, it was like a jigsaw piece falling into place. Ah, uh, right, right. Um, and and then they, they kind of thanked me for that and said, you know, it's obviously not something that they would want to ask their friend about. Um, right. But stuff that didn't make sense before makes sense now, you know? Um, yeah, and there has been, you know, it is a culture, understandably, with suppression. So a lot of this trauma has not properly been processed. And it's almost making me feel like this moment, I, the suppression I've seen in other moments, I wonder if that the lid is coming off that a little bit in, in terms of not feeling like one has to suppress things now and allowing it to come out. Mm, very much so. I, th- I think, it, as you say, it's a situation where people are, are kind of, you know, they've had enough. <laughs> You know, I uh-huh. think a lot, a lot of them, the, the suppression, I think it was unconscious for a lot of people, but for a lot of people it was conscious. Um, but whatever, whatever was causing them to keep quiet, I think, you, like you said, there's a release happening right now. And I think it's, I, I think it's a positive thing. Um, mm. Right. And so on that topic of like foreigners um, trying to, or, or, or your statement that you said allowed foreigners to to have a better understanding of what is going on um, with you and with with other Burmese that are responding to this. You know, Myanmar has been a country that's been, I, I would say, has been quite poorly understood over the years. Historically, mm-hmm. it's kind of gotten forgotten somewhere between <laughs> China and India in terms of Western interests. It's always been kind of an extension of how they've looked at those countries, more of a strategic place than something in its own right. And then with the country being closed for so many years, I felt like there were these catchphrases or superficial descriptions that tended to be used to encapsulate the country without really a lot of introspection or follow-up. But in the last 10 years, with the opening, there there definitely has been a bit more uh, digging into some good pieces and some some perspectives that have been a bit more nuanced than I've seen before. Uh, But now at this time, more than ever, I think people are really trying to understand the country to be able to better understand the crisis playing out. Mm. So I'm curious, you know, you as a native Burmese who's living in the West, I'm sure you've been called to introduce uh, and describe your culture countless times to people that haven't been exposed to it. Mm. And with all the coverage going on today, and even after the recent years of openness, what do you find is still missing in trying to understand, trying to understand the country, the people, the culture? Um, so <laughs> the, uh, this is a terrible thing to say, but there's been like two very small silver linings to all of this nightmare happening. Um, and I think it's that there's been some kind of, I don't know how to say, it's, it, it's like there's been some attempt to, to negate perceptions of the country that had been floating around for a very ah, long time. Okay, interesting. Um, <laughs> and I think, so one one of them, the major one for me, I think, is the fact that there has been, for probably the last 15 years or so, a very, very strong narrative in the West that the women in Burma are, are very submissive. Mm-hmm. Um, like, they, they need saving mm. has been the thing. I, re- I remember um, oh, I probably about 15 years ago, I remember reading an article talking about how there was going to be a charity for um, 
kind of saving the women of some downtrodden country. You know how the way that these ads are often run, very patronizing. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, God, who are they trying to save now? And I looked at it and it said it was Burma. And I went, what? Oh. <laughs> you know? um, mm. Because I was just kind of so furious that, that, that this weird thing had been said about us. And I think, oh, gosh, it was it, it was a very high-profile charity. I think Elton John was one of the patrons. Mm. And it was just one of the things where they're like, oh, yeah, this isn't the next on our, our list of people to save um and this narrative has become really entrenched into the, the media over here and i've had a, a whole bunch of arguments with, with western journalists because of it so I, I don't know if i can say this on your podcast but <laughs> go quite, ahead quite a long time there was this thing going around where they were saying that there was no burmese word for vagina mm-hmm. And they said that, that, that this was just um, symbolic of, of emblematic of how this meant we were downtrodden because mm-hmm. we didn't even have the vocabulary to describe our, you know, our organs. Mm-hmm. And I was so angry about this. I, it was in several newspapers. I was so angry about this. I wrote to the editors of both these papers, mm-hmm. and I said, "Yeah, this is not true." And here's a here's a photocopy of a dictionary entry if that helps and mm-hmm. here are five other words that I know and that's incredible this is this is just the kind of thing that doesn't help but, you know well why use something that's not true to 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 make a point which I also don't think is true um and mm. and they got very angry with me back and they said oh well we spoke to a, an expert in Burmese language and I wrote back and said did you speak to a Burmese woman <laughs> Right. What? 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 I, I'm I'm curious. When was this? Because a couple of years ago, big headlines that the vagina monologues came to Yangon, mm, and were and and were. I and wonder I, what word they used when they did it in Burmese, huh? Well, that that was a that was a big deal. I mean, I I remember. I don't remember the the, the words because I don't my 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 um I'm limited in my vocabulary. But they um they uh I I just remember reading the article and talking about. Um, the range of words that they were presenting and the range of meanings and implications mm. behind them. And so the mm. whole, I didn't go to, to, to the, um, to the event, but in reading about it, it was like the, the, the whole purpose of it was to bring awareness and, um, and bring this out of the, uh, out of the closet and being able to mm. talk, uh, openly about the, just this range of meanings and everything mm. else. So it's incredible that you have an event taking place in Yangon a couple of years ago that's actually, mm talking about this in a very open and progressive way and digging into the, all the different implications of it. And then you have a newspaper in England that's saying that there's no word that exists at all mm. when this event is giving 15 different words and all their shades of meaning. And, and, and so that this was probably at 2012. So, you know, a little mm. while ago. Right, right. Um, still. And, but, you know, still recent memory. Um, and then there was another article again, and it was talking about how you know, women are oppressed in, in Burma. And it was saying about how the, the, the woman that was being interviewed was very rare because she, she had a <laughs> motorbike. And, 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 you know, it said she had a motorbike. And mm. I was like, hang on, what? You know, my family's from Mandalay. Most of the people on motorbikes <laughs> are women. You know? Right. Yeah, it's <laughs> if amazing. You, if, you, if you Google image search woman on motorbike, <laughs> it's a street scene in Mandalay, you know? Right, right, right. <laughs> City like, of bikes. So, so what is what is with this this kind of strange narrative that they're peddling and uh it's so, just, so, it, yeah, it's incredible so, to me that, sorry, go ahead. So I was just going to say, so what's happened with all these protests? Obviously, mm. they've been very, very 
prominent in the media. And people are seeing that they're being led by women and not just mm. women, young women. There's old women. There's, mm. you know, the video that was going around of the, the auntie, the grandmother, who was, you know, blasting the military and the soldiers <laughs> and saying, you right. can take me away if you like. Yeah. So it's like it's not even that Generation Z is brave and not oppressed. Right. We, you know, Burmese women are bloody minded. We always have been. So. Mm. I was gonna. I was gonna ask you that if you were you're you're um, hitting back at this uh, narrative or stereotype of Burmese women being demure and kind of needing saving. If this is not true, what would be even before the protests? How would you characterize the? Uh, and I, I know I can't make a general blanket statement. <laughs> People are different, but mm. if this is, um, how would you push back against uh, a more authentic view? Um, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, just like I said, look at what's happening now. Mm. Look at all the people who are organizing the protests, the, the people that organize the protests, they're all women. So it's not just the people who are organizing the food parcels. It's the people that are coming up with the ideas of how to protest, the people that are drawing up the poster campaigns, the people that are drawing right. up the kind of social media and memes, all of these things. It's all women. Yeah. It's all women doing it. Right. Um, so, um, you just have to see it. And, and I have had, I've seen people saying that they're really shocked and surprised to see hmm. that the women are in front. And I'm like, mm. this, this is just the truth, you know. Uh, it's, it's, it's even, even on a simple day-to-day basis, the fact that someone told me, they actually said to me that they had always heard and read that Burmese women were kind of kept behind closed doors. Mm. And then they visited Burma. And, and they, they'd been around to lots of other countries in the area as well. And they were very surprised because they said, like, for example, if you go to India, if you go to the markets, mm-hmm. all the market holders, stall holders are men. Right. Everyone in the shops is men. All the kind of, any, any shop you go into, any staff, any hotel, it's all run by men. Um, and then if you go into to Burma, there are no men to be seen. <laughs> Mm. Um, it's it's mainly women kind of doing all of this stuff and and they they were quite struck by that and they did say well where are all the men um and i went you know they're doing their own thing but but on a day-to-day basis it is the women that you will see out there and in fact one of the things that a friend of mine said was really noticeable that after the after the coup what changed? Because, you know, people still have the habit of going out to the market every day, getting their food. Um, what changed was that the markets were, instead of being empty, they were packed. And the reason they were packed was because men were now there with the women <laughs> to protect them mm. because they were worried that something would happen. Mm. And so, so she was quite annoyed and said, it's actually a lot busier than normal. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, interesting. Is there anything else you find that in this, especially in this present moment, that there's there's like a missing puzzle piece or something that is not quite being understood in mainstream outside of Myanmar? So the one the one thing that this is this is very controversial. You might have to cut this, <laughs> but the, the one thing that I really really hate in this mm. country in particular is that they have pitched what happened, um, what's been happening with the Rohingyas, the genocide. Mm. Mm-hmm. They've been pitching it as a religious issue. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than an ethnic issue, which is what it is. It's ethnic cleansing. Um, but the picture over here, every news article you read, everything you read, says that basically the, the story, the line is, Buddha, uh, sorry, Burma is a Buddhist country and they all hate Muslims. Mm. And this is why the Rohingya have been massacred, because they hate Muslims. And this is very upsetting because... Mm. 
you know, I'm, I, it's, it's, it's like you said, it's, it's absolutely horrific what has been happening to the Rohingya, but it is, a, a, to, you know, from everything I can tell, it is a very clear case of ethnic cleansing. Mm-hmm. It is not a religious issue. And because they frame it as a religious issue, it endangers the actual, the, not actual, sorry, but it endangers all Muslims within Burma. Right. And yeah. who are, you know, well integrated. Yeah. I have many, I had many Muslims in my own family. Um, and so to be told repeatedly that Burmese people, and I've, I've been told that, so, you know, I've been doing, obviously I've been posting a lot and sharing a lot. I've had people saying to me, Burma deserves this because you hate Muslims. Mm. And I just hate, I just hate that because yeah. it isn't, you know, we don't hate Muslims. We really don't. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is what I mean about how you might have to call this. Um, mm-hmm. But this, this is something that's been really upsetting me because I've been getting like, on a daily basis, I've been getting abuse from people saying that. That's oh, terrible. They're saying this is karma. This is oh, karma because, wow. because we, we destroy, we destroy Muslim people. We, um, so. <laughs> so this is the thing that, and, and, and what, you know, kind of related to this, what the thing that I have been noting, which is very heartbreaking and heartwarming at the same time, is the fact that, you know, the Rohingyas outside of Burma, the ones in the camps, the ones still within Burma, have been, you know, protesting in solidarity. Yes, right. You know? You know and, and, you know, it, and the reason is, is because we have a common enemy who is the military, you know? Um, and And life is not going to be good for anybody if we you know it stays the way it is and that's why they are they have come out to be you know to, to support everybody because they are you know they're, they're part of Burma they are they are part of us and the fact that like I said it's, it's it the fact that they are coming out again that's been shocking people mm. I, I, I've actually had I've seen like people from Reuters having to put out statements saying it is not true that the Rohingyas like or you know, approve of the coup it is not true that they support the military and this is shocking mm-hmm. to say so please stop saying that they wish this on the people of Burma. They are mm-hmm. part of the people of Burma. Right. And they, they, that, that's, that's the issue. They are part of the people of Burma. So they are suffering in the same way. They're seeing other people suffer. It hurts them as well. Um, and it's very, it's very, very sad that the military was so successful in their kind of propaganda campaign against the Rohingya to the extent that, you know, many people within Burma did believe that they weren't part of the country. Um, when the you know the truth is they're just as much right to be there as any ethnic group, and God knows we've got so many, yeah, over over 135, and so you know the the the, the fact that um, it is it is confusing people, I guess, mm. who are thinking why are the Rohingyas supporting the people of Burma? And it's like because they're part of the people of Burma, don't you get it? Right, you know, <laughs> right. And then just just as you're talking about the reflection on that side, I think just as important is looking at the reflection on the Bamar side, and that. There's this incredible transformation going on among at least some people and happening very publicly where Bamar, who maybe were silent before or maybe even held a certain antagonistic position before, mm. are now going through a kind of internal reckoning and mm. and then sharing it publicly mm. of, you know, um, of of how they were wrong and apologizing. I mean, there's the famous picture of the the Burmese guy in the middle of traffic holding a sign that just says, "I really regret about mm, what happened like, with." Um, for, forgive us, right? Yeah. Right, and I think that that's so. Like when you're getting those comments, those abusive comments from people, I think like this is this is something that comes to mind for me is that we always have to be ready as people and as humans to be able to make room 
for someone admitting they're wrong, someone mm-hmm. taking steps to move beyond that, someone able to own that and take responsibility and want mm-hmm. to do what's necessary to heal. Because if we don't make room for that, no matter what someone has done, if we don't give someone the chance to have that genuine reflection and healing, then, I mean, you can forget anything. Like nothing, You can't move from anywhere if you can't um, try to welcome someone from going through that kind of authentic process. Yeah. I mean, and because the other thing is also, it's, it's, it's kind of part of the whole gaslighting thing that the military has been so good at. The fact that there had there has been a relentless campaign to paint them as intruders, right? So it, it, very differently from all the other ethnic groups in Burma, they have been painted mm. as the, the Bengalis, the invaders, right? Mm. And so, and this propaganda campaign unfortunately worked on a lot of Burma, you know, and a lot of not just the Burma, a lot of other people believed it. I, 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 I get to I get to be rude about all, all the ethnicities because I'm a mix myself. <laughs> um, but you know what I mean? There, there were there were other people that believed these lies that were the told, the promulgated by the military, um, and so and and obviously, you know, the, you know Aung San Suu Kyi's shameful defense in in the ICJ mm. that was. That was I was I was so disappointed, mm-hmm. um, as was you know everybody outside the world, and that's why she mm-hmm. fell from grace, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I, I've no idea what was going through her mind when she did that, and, and but unfortunately, it, it kind of cemented for a lot of people that it was right, and the military, yeah. the military downplaying what was happening was true because that's the thing; they weren't just painting them as you know in, intruders; they were also kind of saying oh it's not true that we're massacring them and they're all fine you know Mm. and so you're being kind of pumped with this fake news over and over again and so you have people who are you know they're not speaking because that's the thing that that that, there's been a lot of people saying why did you not speak out for the Rohingyas why are you only speaking out now Mm. and it's and it's partly I think for probably for a, a significant number of people it is because of this campaign that basically made them believe that the Rohingya were their enemy when they're not. But it's, but it's also, we're going back to the fear thing, because I think for a lot of people who did sympathize, they were too scared to say they sympathize. Yes. Um, Right. So I've seen examples. I see there's a, there's a guy who has just confessed that he, (laughs) and this is so sad. He, he went and made a documentary. Um, He went and stayed in the Rohingya camps and he talked to them and he interviewed them. And he realized that, you know, everything was true. You know, everything he'd heard was true. Um, And he made this documentary, but then he was too scared to know what to do with it. And so he's been hiding this documentary. And then he posted on on Twitter, I think, recently saying, I'm going to release this documentary, you know. Mm. And I was too scared to do so before, but I'm going to release it because... People need to know the truth. Um, is this this is uh, that's way win? I think it might be. I can't actually remember. Right. It, probably. Um, mm. I don't know how many people would have gone undercover in Orange Camp mm, to do a, mm, mm. a documentary. But it, so it's possibly it's possibly the same same guy. But but yeah, he he again said that he was he was ashamed because he had never said anything, even though he'd he'd gone to that length to try and tell their story. Uh, but he was still too scared. He had still been too scared to do anything with this material, with this footage, until now. Right. And I think uh, there was also this uncomfortable dynamic that even I felt where, like, the way the Western media started to portray this, they were kind of 
putting it in as the wedge issue, which is a very kind of uncomfortable way to frame it as the Buddhist Sangha. And, um, mm. and, uh, and, you know, the time magazine had that famous head. I just, I cringed when I saw it. I still remember where and when I was, when, when, when I, I saw this head, this um, front cover that was like the, it was the face of Buddhist terror and it showed oh, the, 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 right, right, right. And, it, and, and as not to say that that's not correct or they don't have the right to do that, but that framing of it, as if you're a devout lay Burmese Buddhist, part of a Burmese Buddhist community, and you see a non-Buddhist, foreign, um, non-monastic criticizing in this way, it immediately brings back these kind of imperialist overtones and this inferior position of Buddhism. And so I think um, the way that was framed from the beginning just kind of encouraged a defensive stance of the mm. Sangha. And even those people that wanted to speak out against it, it was this uncomfortable position of kind of like speaking out, um, uh, taking steps to speak out. You had to somehow uh, do it in such a way that was clear that you were not going against overall Sangha or the value of the monkhood or the Buddhist mm. religion because these mm. dynamics were already in place that just made everything so uncomfortable. Mm. So, you know, so one of the things I've seen in the past few weeks is is more people speaking out and both monks as well as lays from the mm -hmm. Burmese Buddhist community. And I think some of those in hearing how they're framing it, I think some of those people are actually recalibrating and going through an in internal transformation. And as mentioned before, and others, mm -hmm. I think, have actually held these views for quite some time and have just uh, it's just been very difficult to know how and where they're able to get them out. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think they're, they're just there is this this opening. There, I mean, as, as you mentioned, there's there actually are some silver linings from this terrible event <laughs> happening. And very small. Ones. <laughs> very small. Yeah. But who, but who knows? You know, Nargis was a cyclone Nargis in uh, 2009. I think it was maybe I have mm. the date, date wrong eight can't remember um that was you know that was a that was a, an absolute tragedy that it's, was I, I know exactly when it was and the reason I know exactly when mm. it was is because the military pushed through their new constitution in the mm -hmm. wake of it mm -hmm. um, and they did that deliberately because basically the, the country was already traumatized and they just went right new legislation um, so yeah, it was 2008 that happened. 2008. So that, but that's, that's a, this terrible tragedy that happens that actually spawns this flowering of civil society because of it. So, mm -hmm. you know, there are these, um, there are these events that can, that can have offshoots in ways that, uh, that, that, that are, that are positive in their own right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite a, it's quite a Buddhist thing to do, isn't it? <laughs> find, find the silver lining. <laughs> Well, it's all you can do in these kind of situations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So looking back overall at where we are now, like at this moment and at this this movement, what would you say has been something that has surprised you the most about how things have played out? Um, <laughs> this is going to sound really bad, but I'm surprised they haven't started shooting sooner. Mm. And again, I think that's just like my horrible PTSD, even though right. I wasn't actually in the thick of it. Um, and and the, actually the other thing that surprised me, and I guess this call goes back to the whole we mess with the wrong generation thing, mm. is the fact that the, the civil disobedience movement has been so creative and unconventional <laughs> right. that I don't think the junta has known how to deal with it. Yeah. You know? So, you know, people marching and shouting protest slogans and, you know, small acts of violence, they can quash, they can call it civil unrest, right? Mm -hmm. they, 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 they feel like they can open fire with no 
you know, compunction. But but people, you know, pretending their cars have broken down or <laughs> drag queens marching down the road in their beautiful high heels or people throwing onions on the, mo- you know, on the freeway. It's like... <laughs> They don't know what to do, right. um, and it's been it's been really it's been really good to watch. Yeah, um, like like you know, it sounds bad, but like as an observer, mm. I'm just enthralled by what they come up with and what happens next. And then obviously, <laughs> the other thing is like you know, making huge murals using like a whole township, mm. Mm. Um, you know, spelling out the words "We want democracy." Uh, or CDM Mogo, you know, it's kind of like, mm. it's, it's crazy. And again, it, it, as you say, it, I, someone was saying to me, they saw, they saw one which says CDM Pagan, and it was at the, the bottom of, I can't remember which PR it was. It was um, the one, I, you might know, the one that's very square, the golden one that's very square, and I'm being very terrible. Um, but basically there was a, a there was a, a, a human formation that says CDM Pagan underneath mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And those of my friends were commenting, saying, that is the neatest writing ever like, <laughs> right. they managed to call that c so perfectly how did they do that mm. and i like, oh, it's just you know it's burmese efficiency <laughs> they yeah. want people to be able to read the message <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it, it when when you talk about that kind of innovativeness the thing all those things you mentioned really struck me as well and one of the things that really astounded me god i, I just I, I i i'm just so amazed at the process i went through and and um understanding how this played out so there was a video a few days ago i don't know if you saw it it was like a two-minute video of what appeared to be a soldier showing his weapon and saying in you know i'm going to go out in the streets and at eight, eight o'clock p.m i'm going to start shooting people if you want to be a martyr then bang your pot because i'm going to aim for the head and oh, that it guy. was the yeah so that, oh, yeah. right so when i saw that the first time i was kind of paralyzed it was kind of like a another one of those other things that was just like oh geez like oh, I was thinking about all my friends and about the mm. fear this instills and was just really freaked out and disgusted and horrified in, in watching this and you know really tapped into my triggers of the terror that could come so I'm just kind of processing this during the day mm. and then I go online like uh, another like I don't know a day later and I see this is so, I don't know if you saw this it's so incredible so someone with some Burmese with tech savvy had like watched that video really carefully and had mm. showed how like in that vid in that two minute video there were like five points in the video where the person behind the camera was telling him what to do and he really? paused those scenes he paused them and he replayed them back like five or six times right. so you could hear he was like like as he's putting the gun together you could hear the guy in the background and he's translating it you know he's putting subtitles on the screen. He's saying, okay, so at this point, the guy behind the camera is saying, now turn the gun on the other side so they see the back of it. And he's kind of whispering that. And then you'll see the guy holding the gun, then turn it around, like just following the directions. Or like, as he's saying something, you might say like, you know, we're going to, um, you know, another thing was like, we're, you know, uh, because now like, you know, rule like 534 is in effect or whatever it was. And then you hear the guy whisper, they won't know what that means. You need to say martial law. And so, so he's being directed. Exactly. Oh, wow. So he's oh. so this is like so so he is taking so it's like this amazing moment of like this trick that the military is trying to do to instill fear that actually isn't um it's not an organic video that is oh, wow. uh, is actually going to happen, but it's which is the effect it had on me. But he's taking all of those layers off to show this is a scared. And very inefficient and very, being, very being put up to it. Right. Being put it to, and and when you watch it again with those in mind, and one commentator even put that in the video, like this is not a soldier who's actually gonna do this. This is kind of 
a pudgy actor who doesn't know his lines (laughs) and is just trying to put this energy out there. And so it's like, but when you really step back and look at this whole process, it was like, this is a video put together for propaganda by people who don't know nearly enough about multimedia as the audience is intended for, because the audience just picked apart everything that was wrong with that video. That, that's the thing. I mean, that's the, the, the thing. They are outclassed on, in that respect yeah. completely. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and again, that's something that, that you know, they did. They've, they've messed with the wrong generation. Mm. And I really hope that, you know, I mean, even even this weekend, they, they'd be mobilizing the Milk Tea Alliance. Mm-hmm. That in, an, in, a, in a couple of days, like you've got people protesting in Thailand and, you know, kind of in front of the Burmese embassy there. Just in, I think some of them got arrested. And it's, it's just the, the solidarity just somehow just done in, in a matter of days. And it's because mm-hmm. they are so, you know, online. They, mm-hmm. they understand how to communicate, even though the internet is being shut down every night, you know? Yeah. So, and um, that was the thing. When you looked at these, the, at 88 and 07, there were time, there were nights where like, you know, dozens of people, sometimes hundreds, got arrested or killed. And mm-hmm. even people in the country didn't know about it until no. days or weeks later. Yeah. Now, when you have one death, that person is uh, is celebrated and honored the next day. I mean, you yeah. are seeing their biography, their background. Yeah. Sometimes you're seeing the moments before, during, and even after the death. So mm. you're humanizing these individual people in ways that were never able to be done before. Mm. And it's so important because, you know, it's the whole thing, you know, one death is a, is a tragedy. Mm. A lot of deaths are a statistic. We, we right. can't let them become statistics, right? Right. Um, so, so, yeah. And, and the fact that the first two deaths were, pretty much children as well yep. it's just yeah it's kind of it, it is really important but you know that that's the thing and the, the other thing that even if them even if the military do think they can do whatever they like they're being filmed constantly you mm. know mm. They, they can't do anything without someone seeing what they're up to mm-hmm. even if they are shutting down the internet mm-hmm. um because as soon as people get back online that thing's being uploaded you know mm, right so, and there's other ways now to get things out yeah, yeah, there are. So it's kind of extraordinary. I mean, even like, so like, you know, the, after like day two or three of the coup, they went, okay, well, Facebook is the internet for Burma. We're going to shut down Facebook. And so they did. And then absolutely everyone, you know, including everyone's like old aunties and uncles, downloaded a VPN. Right. Um, so, <laughs> so like, everyone was back on Facebook. <laughs> um, you know, and that's why the military went, okay, well, then we'll shut down the whole of the internet. So, um, so it, it, it's kind of every time they try to do something so far, everyone else has been able to keep ahead of the game. Right. Right. Um, and long may that continue because, you know, right. I, I have to believe that, that, you know, like Ujo Moulton said, you know, that the revolution must succeed. Right. So, mm. Yeah. And looking back over this month, what would you say has touched you the most? Um, I think what's touched me is probably the fact that even though I remember from the papers and the TV footage at the time what happened in the previous kind of uprisings, the fact that I'm getting to see it almost in real time, Mm. and as you say, it's humanizing the faces, um, the fact that the fact that I'm, <laughs> this is going to sound weird, but I feel like but the other thing, I, I don't think I mentioned in, the, in that in that um, piece that you quoted, but I've said elsewhere is that I have an unbearable amount of survivor's guilt 
Mm, by which right. I mean the fact that I don't I don't live in Burma, but the rest of my family do. Mm. The fact that I can, I don't. I, I mean, I can't swan in and out. But do you know what I mean? Mm. I can leave, right? And they can't. I I I have you know for the past however many years, thirty or so years, felt very very guilty about the the fact that I can't do more, mm. um, and the fact that this past month I have been able to do stuff that has had some kind of positive effect that has seemed to be helping. So at the moment, what I've done is that a friend of mine, a friend of mine who has a much bigger platform than I do on Instagram, hmm. he's got almost 20,000 followers. I've only got 5,000. <laughs> he, he's also got a very different audience from mine. Um, hmm. my, my, I think most my, of my, my followers are kind of Burmese, hmm. or interested in Burmese stuff already. Um, so his is like completely a, a, a new platform. Um, hmm. he, he gave over his stories to me this weekend. Mm, nice. And so what I've been doing is I've, I've actually got Armic because of it. I've been posting <laughs> because he, he wanted me to kind of update his audience and what's happening in Burma right now. So, mm. you know, the whole hashtag what's happening in Myanmar. Right. And, and I decided to use the platform to explain what's happening now, but also how we got to this stage. Mm. Um, and so like yesterday I posted basically a history lesson. Mm. Um, it's like 40 stories explaining the troubled past mm. of the country. Um, and the fact that, you know, we've been un under military rule of some sort for a very, very long time. The mm -hmm. fact that the whole nation is traumatized and has been gaslit all this time. Um, and again, it, it, he, we've both been getting messages from people, either from Burmese people who are either grateful that their story is finally being told because they've been too scared to say it themselves, or from people who never really understood because if you're in Burma itself, you don't get taught this mm, kind of thing necessarily. Right, right. And, and, and that is a way that I've been able to use my privilege in, insofar as because I don't live there, Mm -hmm. I have access to resources that they, they do not. And so I, you know, I can post links, I can post stories. I, I've grown up um, knowing about things that they haven't been allowed to know because they grew up in Burma. Um, and so, and, and also the fact that because I'm bilingual, I can also, I also have two sets of resources to draw from. Mm -hmm. um, but it means that I've been able to paint a full picture for a lot of different groups of people. Um, and it's been it's been quite upsetting for me because as, mm. as I've been posting all of this, mm -hmm. I've been thinking, oh God, I'm reliving like because I've been mm -hmm. putting a lot of personal stuff. So I've I've posted about how like some of my family have been political prisoners. Mm. I've posted about how one of my uncles died because of um, treatment he received when he'd been in prison. Mm -hmm. um, so there's all this stuff that's coming out of the woodwork for me as well. Mm -hmm. But it's been very I think it's been very helpful just if for informational purposes as well as kind of um cathartic and, right. and not just for me but for people that are reading for the Burmese uh -huh. people that have been reading so so that's something that I've been doing this weekend and 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 that has been quite I don't want to say rewarding because uh -huh. I, I, but do you know what I mean I feel like I'm finally being useful uh -huh. um <laughs> in a way that I've not felt useful before so. uh -huh. I can understand um, that <laughs> Yeah, so that does bring up a point of you mentioned how a number of foreigners are being able to tap into what you're saying and have a better understanding, start to be concerned. Uh, I think a lot of foreigners who are outside the country, but either connected to it for one reason or another, or just caring about a people that are suffering so unnecessarily right now, that there is this sense of like, what can I do? And, and, mm. and whatever limitations I have, if I could do something I, I want to, what can I? So do, I'm sure people ask you that too. What is your response when you hear that? 
I have a, a link tree in my biography on all of the social media platforms, and it has basically about six or seven actions that people can do. Oh, great. Um, there's a number of different petitions. There's a petition asking governments to basically recognize and honor the election results. There's another one asking that the ICJ basically investigate Min Lang's war crimes. Um, there are various templates so that people can write to their representatives to put pressure on them. Um, there is a list of the dirty list, um, which is like companies, international companies that have military links. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's like just a, a news feed so people can actually just keep up to date with what's happening. Um, and so, so there's just like a list of six or seven actions that people can do so that they can feel useful and, you know, and, and, and not feel like they're just watching and not being able to help because you can help, even if it's just clicking a link and signing your name to a petition. So. Right. And I think just staying informed is one form of help as well as very much so. well as reaching out. I mean, I, I had, I was talking to a, a Burmese uh, guy on the front lines uh, of the protest uh, last week. And I, when I asked him that question, his answer was just one thing that was so simple. It just said emotional support. It just said, you, you can't understand how important it is for us to hear from you as foreigners. Like if we, if we just know that you care and, and I, you know, I was really astounded by hearing that because I felt, I also felt helpless and felt like I should be doing more. <laughs> and since he said that I have been really promoting his message across everyone I'm in contact with. And, you know, I almost think like a campaign of just like encouraging people outside the country that are interested to like adapt, like or adopt, um, uh, like five to 10 Burmese friends online that you just mm-hmm. check in with every day that you just say <laughs> just like, make sure they're okay. <laughs> yeah. And, well, and that, and also just like, uh, how are you feeling? What are you doing? What's been yeah. going on? Uh, I support you. This is where I am. And I, I cause I, I really was undervaluing the, the power that, that can play, but that was, um, to him, there was nothing greater than that. That just like yeah. we, he said, you know, protesting, he said, <laughs> he's laughing and saying, you know, one of the things you don't really understand, and I didn't either before I did this, is protesting is really hard. Like it's yeah. really tiring. Of course, it must take so much out of them. Yeah. Yeah. And he said, so we need gas in the tank. You know, we mm. need to keep going. And if we yeah. know that, that, that we have, that your emotional support is behind us, mm. it gives us that gas to keep going. So like the, no matter how small it seems here, it's not small there. And yeah. in that letter from the monk that we posted uh, uh, yesterday, that was how he ended the letter. He said, in the, at the end of this letter, he said, you are noticing that in the protests, they are switching from more Burmese slogans to English, and they're doing that for the foreign community yeah. to be engaged and to care. And yeah. so please care about this. You are the hope. You know, you are what we need right now. So that's definitely something I would plug. And it's so easy to do is just if you have Burmese friends that are over there, you know, talk to them, check in with them daily, um, let them know that you support them. If you don't, uh, Burmese are so friendly and meeting <laughs> new people and engaging and and it's really easy to just start talking and just, you know, meet someone on so, some social media platform and just let them know that that you care and you support and when they're having a good day or a hard day, that you're just there to chat with them and that you really can't underestimate how valuable that is. I mean, it kind of related to that. I've, I've kind of somehow, well, not somehow, obviously, I've, I, I seem to have developed a whole lot of little brothers and sisters who, mm. who message me and go, Ma, Ma, can you, you know, what's mm. going on? Can you help me? Mm-hmm. And, and what is, again, this is just really heartbreaking. Mm. I, was, I was talking to one of them about something, and then they said to me, I just want you to know, I'm not like police or MI. Mm-hmm. And I went, I know you're not, I can tell you're not. And I feel really bad that you feel like you have to reassure me 
but you know you're not an informer mm-hmm. um so so yeah but it is yeah i i have adopted lots of little brothers and sisters which has been really really nice yeah um, <laughs> right yeah so you know i know there's so much going on in this month and probably in your own life as well is there anything that uh covering trying to cover and understand this and bring this understanding to more people is there anything that I haven't asked about that uh, that's missing in the conversation you'd like to share? I don't. I don't think so. I, I would say, you know, I mentioned before that I'd taken over someone's Instagram account, so they have actually they've they've saved all of the stories on their profile. Um, there hmm. is like a a little kind of icon in the highlights that is just called Myanmar. Mm-hmm. Um, I would urge people to just look at that because I have spent quite a long time documenting a lot of you know what's behind Burmese history and culture that kind of explains a lot of what's happening right now mm-hmm. um and I think it will help explain a lot of the nuances that people might be missing so yeah please please read um it's got links as well because that's the other thing because he's got a lot bigger platform than I have he can actually post links mm. so I'd inserted links to a lot of further reading material mm-hmm. so if you see a story and you're thinking oh what is that about I should have inserted a hyperlink for you to go to an article and read mm. more. um so it's, it's, it's a very potted history of course but it will help I think it will help people understand why what's happening is happening um, so. <laughs> and what is the social media account where people can find so, it? Uh, <laughs> so it's a gentleman called Matt Inwood. Um, mm-hmm. It's M A T T underscore I N W O O D. Um, so he, he's a friend of mine um, who is a he's actually a, a like a, as an art director. He um, he worked on my first book. That's how mm. I know him. Oh great! Um, so so yeah, he's 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 a really really lovely guy, and his his feed is normally just beautiful pictures mm-hmm. of food, um, mm. surprisingly. Um, but he felt so moved actually by something that I posted the other day that he he just contacted me and said, please can I you know pass the mic to you? Mm. Um, so that's what he's done, and so as a result, I've been able to put all these resources together that you can click and look at, so that they're not just stories; they're actually clickable. Um, so yeah, please that's- please go and look at that. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. And that's really what we need more and more is to help continuing building this momentum, opening up uh, spaces where other people can also feel comfortable and have the courage to share from their points of view. Mm-hmm. And uh, if someone, uh, you know, even for people out there that don't necessarily have their own platforms or involvement in this, just the emotional support. I mean, just to, mm. to be informed at minimum and to reach out to a few people, even if they're new friends you make online and whatever mm. your social media platform is at your choice, that, that just, that, that is giving gas in the tank of these people who are mm. all running on fumes right now. They are, they really are. And you know, I just, I'm just amazed. I'm just constantly amazed at how they can keep going. And so, yeah, like you said, we need to support them mm. as much as we can, however we can. Yeah, I mean, every day there's, I don't know how many videos or pictures there are that drive me to or past the brink of tears in terms of what oh. new development is happening or what new role oh. of courage has taken place or what oh. new terror has come that they're responding to. And you know. Well, it was just, you know, like just this morning when they opened fire on all the medical students. So there's just all these students marching in their white coats and you just think, oh, how can you do that? How can you do that? It's just, just un- unreal, absolutely unreal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. There's no, there's no sense that can come from it. Thank you, thank you so much for letting me talk to you. And then, yeah, I hope that it helps people understand where we're coming from and 
you know, how we were all just hoping for a better future for everybody. So in that case, thank you so much for taking the time to come on here and chat with us. I think this has been really quite uh, valuable and really appreciate it. As a small, mostly volunteer team, the production time for a single episode of Insight Myanmar podcast can sometimes be as long as four months from start to finish. More recently, we've tried to increase the speed of this process for special episodes, but the fastest we've been able to manage has been around three weeks. During this current crisis, however, where even a single day can be so urgent, we simply don't have the luxury of waiting so long. We've worked around the clock to shorten this time frame, and some episodes have managed a turnaround of just 36 hours. Similarly, while our previous goal was to produce a podcast once every 10 days, we are now trying to put out episodes as soon as they finish, knowing how valuable it is to get these ideas out there at this critical time. However, we cannot accomplish this increase without your support. If you have found value in today's episode and think that others may also benefit from this type of content at this time, please consider making a donation so that we can continue our mission. If you would like to join in our mission to share the Dhamma from the Golden Land more widely, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Every cent goes immediately and directly to sustaining the programming. You can give right on our website via credit card by going to insightmyanmar.org slash donation or through PayPal by going to paypal.me slash insightmyanmar. We also take donation through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. In all cases, simply search Insight Myanmar on each platform and you'll find our account. Alternatively, you can also visit our website for specific links to any of these respective accounts, or feel free to email us at info at insightmyanmar.org. In all cases, that's Insight Myanmar, one word, spelled I-N-S-I-G-H-T-M-Y-A-N-M-A-R. If you would like to give in another way, please contact us. Thank you for your kind consideration. You have been listening to the Insight Myanmar podcast. We would appreciate it very much if you would be willing to rate, review, and or share this podcast. Every bit of feedback helps. If you are interested, you can subscribe to the Insight Myanmar podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, please check out our website for a list of our complete episodes, including additional text, videos, and other information available at www.insightmyanmar.org. If you cannot find our feed on your podcast player, please let us know and we'll ensure it can be offered there. There was certainly a lot to talk about in this episode, and we'd like to encourage listeners to keep the discussion going. Make a post, request specific questions, and join in on discussions on our Insight Myanmar podcast Facebook group. You are also most welcome to follow our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter accounts by the same name of Insight Myanmar. If you're not on Facebook, you can also message us directly at info, I-N-F-O, at insightmyanmaronward.org. If you'd like to start up a discussion group on another platform, let us know and we can share that forum here. Finally, we are open to suggestions about guests or topics for future episodes. 
So if you have someone or something in mind, please do be in touch. We would like to take this time to thank everyone who made this podcast possible. Currently, our team consists of two sound engineers, Martin Combs and Tharng A. There's of course Zach Hessler, content collaborator and part-time co-host. Ken Pransky helps with editing. And a special Mongolian volunteer who was asked to remain anonymous does our social media templates. In light of the ongoing crisis in Myanmar, a number of volunteers have stepped in to lend a hand as well. So we'd like to take this time to appreciate their effort in our time of need. We'd also like to thank everyone who assisted us in arranging for the guests we have interviewed so far. And of course, we send a big thank you to the guests themselves for agreeing to come on and sharing such powerful personal stories. Finally, we're immensely grateful for the donors who made this entire thing possible. We also remind our listeners that the opinions expressed by our guests are their own and are not necessarily reflective of the host or other podcast contributors. Please also note, as we are mainly a volunteer team, we do not have the capacity to fact-check our guest interviews. By virtue of being invited on our show, there is a trust that they will be truthful and not misrepresent themselves or others. If you have concerns about the statements made on this or other shows, please contact us. This recording is the exclusive right of Inside Myanmar podcast and may not be used without the expressed written permission of the podcast owner, which includes video, audio, written transcripts, and excerpts of any episode. It is also not meant to be used for commercial purposes. On the other hand, we are very open to collaboration. So if you have a particular idea in mind for sharing any of our podcasts or podcast-related information, please feel free to contact us with your proposal. If you would like to support our mission, we welcome your contribution. You may give by searching Insight Myanmar on PayPal, Venmo, Cash App, GoFundMe, and Patreon, as well as via credit card on our site at insightmyanmar.org donation. And with that, we're off to work on the next show, so see you next episode.